let me ask you a profound question. How do you think the world will end? I mean, how do you think it will happen? I want you to consider these things. It's when I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, it took me a little while to mature, um, it, was, it was a nuclear threat. The West and the former Soviet Union. Someone's going to press a button and the missiles are going to fly and that's going to be the way the world ends. Now, it seems uh, that we're more fascinated with asteroids. Uh, one just flew by a couple weeks back, the uh, size of four football fields. In fact, there's one anticipated, it's called DA-50. It's an asteroid about a kilometer in diameter. should be here in 2,880. So we've got a little bit of time to prepare our asteroid-killing machine. Uh, but that one is, is at least projected to come close enough that it could rearrange some furniture, let's just say, if it hits. Now, the predictions about the end of the world, they've been, they've been going on forever. But I want to remind you that false warnings don't deny the validity of a true warning, a legitimate warning. The Bible is very clear about the world ending, that all of our lives are brief, the temporal, the glory of men and women. It's, it's temporal, that we are, here like, we are here today like grass, and tomorrow we're gone. Now, I, I don't... Unfortunately, many people feel comfortable with setting dates. I have no idea what kind of time uh, God would choose to bring about the conclusion of human history. Um, I have no idea, but I, I do know that Isaiah in chapter 24 is very clear about this reality that the end will come. Now, I want to remind you of the context here. You know, we've looked at the first part of Isaiah, uh, chapters 1 through 12, and it's really been speaking about the nature of man apart from God and how God has moved with mercy through this Messiah that he will come and bring deliverance to us. We've looked at that in chapter 7 and chapter 9, chapter 11 as well, that there's a kingdom that he's going to come to establish, a government will sit upon his shoulders. And then in the second part of Isaiah, from chapters 13 through 27, uh, the subject is much more about God's judgment of the world, that God will judge the world. In fact, if you read chapters 13 to 23, you're going to see this God just sending Isaiah to speak to the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Edomites, the Syrians, and he just goes through these nations. And then you come to 24, and he pulls back the, the camera, and he speaks to the judgment of the world, that God will judge the world. Now, in 25, 26, and 27, you have this beautiful picture of the righteous delighting in the fact they've been drawn out of judgment, delighting in the fact that death has been destroyed, and that God's kingdom has been set up. So Isaiah is clearly speaking about future days. Judgment leading to glory and salvation. Uh, but today I want to look at 24. Next week we'll look at 25. And you want to look at the two together. Because one without the other is, uh, is imbalanced. To see all judgment but not deliverance is frankly depressing. To look at the deliverance without the judgment is... Um, you fail to appreciate the deliverance. So look with me in Isaiah 24, and I'll read the entire chapter. If you have your Bibles and you want to read it with me, it would be helpful. Isaiah 24. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, 
and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched. Few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark, the gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to God. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror in the pit and the snare upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Profound text of scripture. Um, weighty. I pray that you will feel the weight of the text. I pray that you will feel the relief that will come through the gospel. Okay, what I want to do is two things. I want to just try to explain this passage. So this is how Isaiah at least teaches how the world will end. And then I want to draw implications from it. So I'll back in the applications to the end, but I kind of just want to explain this. There's a number of facets about this judgment. The first thing I think you see in verse 1 is the certainty of it, both the certainty of judgment and the fact that it is impartial. Look with me at verse 1. He says, behold the Lord. Now that word behold is kind of an interesting word. It's to grab your attention. It's to focus your mind. There's something coming. This word is calling for you to have faith in what follows because what follows is in the future and it's given to you by God. And so it's not something that you're going to be able to analyze or inspect. He's saying, behold the Lord. He's saying, the Lord is doing a work here. And so he's calling people of faith to believe in what follows 
will actually be coming. He says, behold, the Lord will empty the earth. He'll make it desolate. He's going to twist its surface. You can, like wringing a rag, God will twist this surface and scatter its inhabitants. The, the grammar implies an expectancy. This is definitely going to happen. You see the same thing in verse 3. He says, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. So Isaiah is not giving kind of, I see the tea leaves or I see the signs in the sky. It's not some self-predictive analysis. He's literally saying God's word has said this will happen. There's no doubt in his mind. This isn't a possibility that you need to contend with. It's a reality you need to expect. It's going to happen. Now, you may be thinking, well, well, why is God doing that? I mean, should God be doing that? Does he have a right to do this? I want to remind you that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That kind of sets the standard for who we are and who he is. God has created all things in the power of his word. And so God, the scriptures, give God absolute authority to do and to move as he pleases. If he's created all things, then he can draw all things to a close. Because in the beginning, he made everything. So everything is his. And this judgment is his. And it's not just to be certain, but it's impartial. Look in verse 2. He says, it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, with the slave, so with the master. You see these kind of polar opposites, including everything in between. It doesn't matter if you're just a regular person or if you're a priest. A religious standing doesn't put you in a different position in the judgment. Slave or master, social rank doesn't make a difference. It doesn't give you a first-class seat or some safer area in the judgment. The lender or the borrower, financial position doesn't make a difference. God's judgment will be universal across all peoples, across all lands. And when you hear that, do you find that objectionable? Do you feel that you're not accountable to God? And who are you accountable to? Is it just yourself? Does God have a right to do this? Now, I will grant you, this is a hard, I mean, I kept fighting, believe this, believe this. I mean, in our, in our world of sensory attraction and what we see and feel and hear and touch, it's very hard to grasp this by faith. I'm calling you to. So, so the judgment first is going to be certain and it's impartial, but secondly, the judgment is due to the nature of our rebellion against God. Look with me at chapter... In verses 4 to 6, he again repeats what's happening. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes. Look at him. He says, the highest people of the earth will languish. So, so the high brow are not omitted from this scene. But then in verse 5, he explains it. He says, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. They've transgressed the laws. They've violated the statutes. They've broken this everlasting covenant. Now, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. What Isaiah is accusing the world of of being is guilty. They took God's creation and they defiled it. They polluted it, if you will. They polluted it with murder, idolatry, immorality, rebellion, wickedness, self-centeredness. We have done that to God's good creation. And that's what he's saying about these statutes that have been broken, this everlasting covenant. Now, what is this everlasting covenant? Well, some scholars think it's the covenant of Noah that God made with Noah. Genesis 9, 17, the same words are used. I go along with other scholars, I think, that speak to something even prior to that. Uh, This everlasting covenant is really the implicit covenant of God being a creator 
we being a creation. And God being a creator has covenanted to give us life. Creation is to respond to God in joyful obedience. That is a covenant just established between creator and creation. And this is the covenant we've broken. That God has embedded a moral code within us. He's embedded truth within our souls. And that we have violated that law by going our own way, doing our own thing. In fact, I would liken it to Paul's description of the law in chapter 2 of Romans. Here's what he says. He says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's saying that every single person, every man, every woman, every child has the law written upon their heart. It's a covenant with God. And, and, and the guilt that you and I feel is a violation of that covenant that we have with God. The guilt that you and I experience when we do the wrong things, that is us understanding God has placed a covenant and a law upon us. Now, social scientists will say, oh, no, 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 no. No, the guilt is a social construct. That's something that society has done and set up parameters, and when you break society's norms, then you feel a measure of guilt. That doesn't explain very well what happens when a child at a very young age that hasn't been constructed by society will turn around and look before they do something wrong. They know. They know there is something fundamental to us that regardless of education, social status, you know when you've crossed that line. Why? Because God has written this law upon our heart. And that's what's bringing the judgment, is all men and all women have violated this covenant with God. And so God is right. He's established life and breath, and he's given it to us, and we have lived our own lives. And so Isaiah is saying, that's why judgment's going to fall. That's why judgment's going to fall on all people. This is really the premise or much a, a main plank in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. That moral code is known to us. Why do you get in line? Why don't you just go to the front, he asks. We just know. You don't do that. There's this law written upon us. Now, do you see this law? I mean, how else do you account for your guilt? How else do you, how else do you account for that struggle that you have when you know you're doing that which you should not know or which you should not do? So think you know, God is bringing judgment that's certain, it's going to be impartial, and the judgment is over the nature of our sin. It's a just judgment. But third, this judgment is going to complete. It's going to be complete, it's going to be total, and it's going to be inescapable. Read with me. Read with me verses 7 through 12. There are dark words. He says, he's giving kind of a descriptive to the scope of this judgment. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilance cease, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets. Listen to this. All joy has grown dark. And the gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. I mean, celebration, rejoicing, happiness 
are gone. It's like a perpetual funeral. You, you would not laugh. You wouldn't think to laugh. There's no joy. Isaiah is showing us through this picture of a broken city what the judgment will be like. Now, you may ask, well, is this city, is Isaiah prophesying that Jerusalem is going to experience this? Well, I think he is, yes. And they did experience it. Year, just, a, just a few years later, Babylon would come and destroy it. They ripped down the gates. They ransacked the city. There was darkness and hopelessness. It was a destroyed city. It happened to Babylon. But Babylon is this particular judgment looking for and picturing a future colossal judgment. See, I think what Isaiah is doing is he's using this picture of a city, this city of men and women who have turned their backs on God, and they've lived according to their rules. They're living according to their own customs. They want to establish their own norms, all in disobedience to God. And so he's picturing people apart from God in the context of a city. This is what Augustine did in the 4th century. He was the great church father. Few minds have paralleled his, the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. And he wrote a book called The City of God. And what he does is he paints the world into two cities. There's the city of man to which we've all been born into, where we've lived and breathed. We've pursued our own pleasures, our own passions. We've lived for ourselves at the center of all things. And then there's the city of God, those people who have been delivered out of the city of men. And they're living for God. They're finding their joy and satisfaction and happiness in him. And he's saying, this city is passing. This city is rising. And Isaiah is saying, the city of man will be destroyed. And it's inescapable. Look at verse 17 and 18. He says this. He says, terror in the pit and the snare are upon you. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught into the snare. For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. That language at the end of verse 18 is the language that was used in the flood, in God's judgment of the flood. It's inescapable. You're going to hear the sound of judgment, and some of you will actually be able to flee. But those of you who flee will fall into a pit. There'll be some of you that can get out of the pit, but you're caught in the snare. There's no escape. There's no way around it. There's no way of evading it. It's total, and it's complete, and it's absolutely dark. This is a despair that we don't... We think the Dow Jones coming below, below 10,000 is despair. This, this is a whole other level that we don't even know about. Do you think you will pass through it? Do you think somehow you're not going to face it? Thankfully... And it is a remarkable feature. You know, when you think about all the authors in Scripture, you think about all the times in which it's been written, you think about all the genres in which, in which the Scriptures are written, and there's always grace in the midst of judgment. There's always, some, there's always the glimmer of the gospel that God never gives us something without giving us a little light and hope. And you see this. So judgment, I've told you, is certain. I've told you it's due to our sin. It's total and unescapable, but it's not without mercy. Look in verse 13. You see it in the midst. He says this. He says, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth. So in the midst of this judgment, among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, and as the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. He's giving us a picture of when the olive tree is beaten. It's not beaten so much that a few olives aren't left. 
or when the harvesting of the, of the vineyard is taken care of, it isn't that you can go back and glean a few. So he says in verse 6, and few are left. He's saying they, this remnant, the survivors, these people that will pass through judgment, look at what it says they'll do. They'll lift up their voices. They're not crying in despair. They're singing for joy over the majesty of God. They shout from the west. From the east they give glory to God. The coastlands to the sea. In other words, out of this judgment, God is going to draw forth a people who will worship him, who will have been delivered. This is incredibly hopeful that God would bring about through this Messiah a people for himself that will give glory to God in the midst of the judgment. Who are these people? These people are the ones that turned. When they heard the gospel that Isaiah was preaching, they turned by faith to the Messiah. They repented of their sins. They sought God for grace. They sought to shelter under the wings of God by his Messiah to avoid and to pass through this judgment. This is hope for us. Have you experienced this? Have you come to Christ? Have you come to understand Jesus Christ to be the wings under which you must huddle? So when the wrath of God comes down, you will not be scorched by it. This is what it means to have faith in Christ, to believe in the Messiah, to repent of our sins, to get right with God through the Messiah. That's the remnant here in 13 to 16. Now this judgment has mercy, but it leads now to a new heavens and new earth. Look with me in in 21. He says this, he says, On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven, in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. So what what we see is this judgment coming. And the judgment is going to be certain, and it's going to be over sin. It's going to be complete. But out of that, he's going to raise a remnant, and he's going to lead to the new heavens and the new earth. By punishing the spirits in prison, and we think most think that would speak to the demons and the angelic beings that have rebelled against God. And the kings and all those who follow him will be gathered up. They'll be herded together in a prison, and they will be punished by God. Righteousness will reign. Justice will prevail. Wickedness will be punished. This is the day that the weak are drawn up. The downtrodden are raised. The humble are exalted. This is a day where scales are balanced, where everything is made right. In fact, look in 21, or excuse me, 23, it says, The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders. In other words, on this day, there will be such glory displayed by God that those things which we think are brightest in the sky, the moon and the suns, they will hang their heads in shame because their brightness is nothing compared to the brightness of God. His regal glory will be so magnificent that they will hang their heads in shame before before all the earth is destroyed. And he brings about a new earth. This is the start of the new heavens and the new earth. So the desolation city in verses 7 to 12, it's replaced by a new city. In fact, we read about it in Revelation 21. We read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's what we just read. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself 
will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In verse 23 it says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God will give its light. Interesting, Isaiah writes this 800 years before Christ, and John pens that probably 100 years later, after the death of Christ, that no more sun, no more moon needed. Why? It's amazing how the threads of Scripture just weave through, giving us an incredible confidence that these were not penned by men, but men moved by the Spirit, born up by the Spirit. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, if you were to look at Revelation 19, you will see that it says when the smoke comes up from the pit, the people will shout hallelujah because God will be glorified even in the justice and the destruction of the world. This is the judgment. It's certain. It's certain to come. It's impartial. It's due to the sin. It's total and complete. But there's mercy in it, and it leads us to something far more glorious, this new heavens and new earth. This is the grace of God that he warns us. Why, why do you warn people? You warn people because you care for them. God's grace is evident in the warning. If you don't give a care about a person, then you don't warn them. You just let them go on and do their thing. But God warns us over and over again. So what do we do with this? Well, let me try to draw some uh, implications. I've got a slew of them. Write down the ones that are helpful to you. And, and, um, but, but let me start with the non-Christian here, the non-Christian. When you read this, my encouragement to you would be don't hesitate to come to Jesus Christ. Don't hesitate to flee to Christ. Jesus Christ said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Rest from what? Well, the burden of sin, the burden of guilt, the burden of shame before God. All of us know we're aging out in life. You're going to be standing before God that ought to bring a burden. Or you're living in absolute denial. You're living in absolute denial of what everybody walks through. Death is a reality. And so don't hesitate to come to Christ. Appeal to Christ in mercy for grace. There's no magical formula. It's you literally saying, God, I see that I've broken this everlasting covenant. I know it upon my own soul. And I appeal to you for mercy and grace. Just like the Tax collector in Luke 18, God, have mercy on me. That's all he prayed, and he went home justified. If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. So that's the word for the, for the non-Christian. In fact, John, Jesus says it this way in John 3, 16. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but that the world might be saved through him. You're being saved from this wrath. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him, you stand condemned already. So it's not not a determination. You've got to wait until the end, and we'll see which way the scales go. That may work for Islam. It isn't the Christian faith. We're condemned already. Why? Because you've already broken the covenant, the everlasting covenant. It says in John 5, 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So that's for the non-Christian. The Christian here, let me, let me encourage you with, with a, a few things. Don't fear judgment. For the true Christian, do not fear judgment. The greatest judgment is not what I've just read. 
This is the judgment at the end of the world, and it will be, in comparison to all things, the greatest, but not the greatest. The greatest judgment is when Christ died on a cross bearing our sins. Folks, that is nothing short of an establishment of God does judge sin. God doesn't, you know, toleration is, of course, the sweet song of our culture. And, and to be tolerant at a certain level makes absolute sense and it's appropriate and proper. But, but there is an intolerance of tolerance. And, and, and God is do, does not tolerate sin. And you see this in the judgment of Christ. The greatest judgment is Christ taking upon himself our sin and then bearing the full vent fury of God. That God exhausts himself in punishing the Son for our sins. Why else would Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's feeling that tearing, that separation, as it were, from the Father. So you don't need to fear because he's been judged. You will not be. You've passed from death to life. This is a point of tremendous rejoicing. I, I, because I can't remember half my sins, I don't think I fully understand the nature of what he bore for me. But we will one day. Because in Matthew 12, he says, every word spoken, every deed done will be brought out. Not in terms of bringing judgment to me, but I think showing me the unfathomable depth of his grace for my soul. So, so don't fear for the Christian. Those of you who have turned by faith, don't fear the judgment. But be aware of it. And be aware of what he bore for you. Secondly, I, I would say... Um, don't forget this judgment. You know, I don't know the time, and I don't know uh, dates or seasons that this will take place, but that doesn't minimize the confidence that we should have in it. God has already judged. God's judged in the flood. He's judged the Tower of Babel. He's judged Solomon and Gomorrah. He judged Ananias and Sapphira for lying about what they gave. He's given judgments before. And these judgments are precursors to a greater narrative, if you will. He's done this, he will do this. As Luke read in in 2 Peter 3, don't think he doesn't judge. He's already judged. You have the cross as an example of that. So be mindful to not forget this teaching. We get about our lives and we forget about it. But Jesus warns us in Revelation 16, he speaks and says this. He says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Stay dressed, he says in Luke 12, for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. That's what we're to be like. You know, I've pointed out before to you that Jesus could sleep in the back of a boat when his life was threatened, but he couldn't sleep before he was about to face the judgment of God in the garden. Stay awake. Be aware. Be mindful. You know, investment advisors or retirement advisors will tell you that the struggle with the North American is that he puts more time into planning his vacation than he does his retirement. More time is invested in planning a vacation. I mean, the analogy is profound. We want to think about a week at the beach this year, but we don't want to think about what may be for 20 years of our life after working our main job. We want to think about this life, but we don't think about the next life. Don't forget this. Remind yourself. Remind others. Ask them to remind you. So, so don't forget. Secondly, I would say don't devalue. Don't devalue the nature of judgments that you do see in life. In other words, you and I see judgments all the time. We see tragedies. And, 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 and these things, I never have used the pulpit to threaten judgment 
to try to get someone into heaven. I, I don't believe that the fear of hell creates a love for heaven. So I, I don't think that's the way to preach. I don't think that's the way to evangelize. But saying that, saying that doesn't mean that the judgments of God can be means of grace to wake us to spiritual realities that we won't otherwise consider. That's the point of these judgments. You're to look at them and realize how brief life is. Folks, this is in miniature. Your bodies are slowly being judged. Black hair to gray. Knees that don't creak to creak. Age spots that start forming. They're all forms of judgment reminding us that that day is coming. This isn't a bad thing. It's a merciful thing. Again, God's slowly bringing to us this reality that we're marching towards a day when we're going to stand before him. This is the whole, I think this is the whole premise in Luke 13. You know, there's two examples that the disciples bring up. Pilate had killed some Galileans and mixed their blood with sacrifices. In one example, another example was a tower fell over and killed a bunch of people. And they were saying, what gives? Is God responsible for that? Were they sinners and they deserved it? How does it work? And so here's what Jesus said to him in Luke 13. He said, uh, don't think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. So you can't do a cause-effect relationship. You can't just say, well, they suffered. They must have done something bad. That may be Buddhism. That's not Christianity. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. So Jesus uses that tragedy, tragedy as it was, not trying to explain it, just to say, you better be mindful of it because you're going to perish in some similar way, and you need to be ready. So don't devalue, I mean, these judgments and these tragedies. I want to mourn for the people who are suffering, but I don't want to miss the greater picture that they point to. So, so don't forget, uh, don't devalue. I would also say don't waste your life. You know, judgment of God is to help us think clearly through life. The fact that all things are going to be destroyed is to cause you to think differently about things and people and success. In other words, these things are all temporal. Now, I want to enjoy them. God has given us many good things, and I want to enjoy them. They're gifts from him, and they help me to see how good and kind he is. I want to love these things, but I don't want to love them inordinately. I don't want to love them to a greater degree than their value really is. Your success, your accomplishments, the way you handle your body, the way you handle your money— the ambitions that you may have, don't let those replace the value that God ought to have with you. In other words, with this day coming, how ought we to live? And to pursue the things of this world that we know, we know by their very nature, are brief. Why do it? It seems so foolish. In fact, Peter tells us in his first letter, he says this, here's how you ought to look at things, he says. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, that sets the paradigm. Okay, what should I... He says, therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded. He says, above all, love one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you speak, speak with the words of God. If you serve, serve with the strength that God provides it, and everything God may be glorified. The end is near in Peter's mind, and so he gives marching orders. Be self-controlled, sober-minded, love, exercise hospitality, and serve. That is what builds a life for eternity. Are you doing that? I mean, when you consider your own life, is all your focus and time and attention 
into career building, financial security, pleasure? What is it directed to? Is it not directed to one another? I think you'll be disappointed in the end if you pour into that stuff, which will just turn to dust before your eyes. So don't waste your life. I would also say don't fail to speak about the judgment. This is not a message that I would just jump to naturally, obviously. This is a heavy message. I understand it. I like you to like me. I like to say nice things to you. That works nicely for me. These are hard messages to preach, but we need to speak about them. We just need to do it with humility, and we need to do it with tears. You know, Isaiah says in 13, he says, or 16, he says, woe is me. Why is he saying that? He's not expecting the judgment to fall on him. Why would he say that? I think he says it because he knows the judgment's going to fall. He grieves over these people. He grieves over these. I think of Jesus when he came into Jerusalem. What is it? It says he wept before Jerusalem because they missed the day of visitation. They didn't see his ministry. They didn't respond to the gospel. I think it bids us to consider how mournful are we over those who will never heed this message. I mean, consider that. I mean, consider the sort talk about it with one another. I would also say to um, don't misunderstand the importance of this as how it makes sense in the world. Judgment will make the world make sense. Let me explain that. Every day you and I see things that are unreconciled. We see evil prevail. We see uh, we see um, anger and bitterness unreconciled. We see conflict that never finds solution. We see a world of absolute tragedy. The judgment day is what is going to make everything make sense. God's going to bring justice. Justice will be served. Um, wickedness will be punished. Righteousness will be honored. There is going to be a balancing that takes place. We need judgment to make sense of our world. Our world does not make sense apart from what God will do in the end day. That will help all things to make sense. Nobody will hold God in contempt for his world after they see judgment finished. Nobody will say, you didn't handle that well. Nobody's going to be able to stand and hold God in contempt. I would also say two other things. I would say don't make peace with sin. Don't seek to manage sin in your life. I mean, don't look at sin as something that we can just manage and play with. Sin is what brought the judgment of God upon Christ. Sin is what brought the judgment of God or will bring the judgment of God upon the world. I mean, be be mindful of that. I know we kind of think there's some pet sins that I have around my ankles that just kind of travel with me where I go. And and I I would just say, I, I would be mindful of that. In fact, Peter warns us, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So be aware of that. I mean, be aware of the nature of your sin. This is where men, I think, you need an encouragement to, um, to, to yoke yourselves with other uh, believers in this church. Uh, you know, if you're as... Luke mentioned about us being a pilgrim. We are pilgrims. And when pilgrims travel, they don't travel alone. They travel in pairs. It's safer to travel in pairs if you're going to travel in the wilderness with another pilgrim. And we need one another to help one another fight against this tide of sin. And I'm not talking about the big sins. I'm not talking about, well, I'm just avoiding the big ones. I'm talking about avoiding sin altogether. And I don't expect anybody here, including myself, to be sinless 
But I would expect us to be repentant, that we look at our lives with honesty and integrity and we repent of our sins and we seek reconciliation with those with whom we've sinned against. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote the um, book Screwtape Letters. Great book. It's kind of a parody. It's about a, a senior tempter and a junior tempter. And the senior tempter is, is trying to educate and school this junior tempter on how the junior tempter can bring people away from the enemy, or that's, uh, that's an expression for God. And so it's this dialogue between the senior and the junior tempter. And here's what he writes about the nature of sin. He says this. He says, you'll say these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness, you know, that the young tempter was able to get the human to do. He says, but do remember, the only thing that matters is to the extent that you separate the man from the enemy, or that's God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So be mindful of that. And then last, I would say don't get distracted. You know, I I was speaking with somebody... They asked about the ages of my children, and I was, so well, one's 25, one's 24, and one's 19. And I had one of those flashbacks, like I just remember putting diapers on. And boom, 25 years have just elapsed, and any parent my age knows exactly what I'm speaking about. And, and the reality is time, don't get distracted with the journey here. I mean, you are pilgrims. I mean, this day comes to each one of us, probably a lot sooner than you suspect. And so we don't want to be distracted in things of the world. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, just a a great mind theologian back in the 18th century in New England, he says this about traveling. He says, "If, if a traveler finds an inn comfortable, he doesn't entertain thoughts of remaining for his journey's end. That's not in his mind. He may tarry for a night to rest, but he moves forward seeking the journey's end. That's what we're to be about. Let's not be distracted by the things of this world. Let's be mindful to promote within others and within ourselves a, a growing desire and hunger for what that day will be like when, when the Lord of hosts will reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before the elders. So let me pray for us and then I'm going to ask if, if you want to pray, then, then pray out loud that we can hear you. Ray's going to close us in just a minute, but, but you want to pray corporately. We want to exercise this uh, joy of being together and appealing to God for mercy. And uh, I would ask you to pray in response to the word. I'll begin and, and Ray can close this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your warning. Thank you for your kindness. Father, as I have appealed to you, would you grant grace that we our eyes might look to you enthroned in the heaven as a maid looks to her mistress, as a servant looks to its master, may our eyes look to you for mercy. Amen.